0: Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to be together on such a bright, sunny morning. I looked out my window this morning, and the sun was shining, and it was nice and warm in my kitchen. So I put my sandals on. Then I went outside. (laughs) It's a beautiful day, but it's a chilly day. Some words from the first letter of Paul to the church at Corinth. The message about the cross God decided, through the foolishness of our proclamation, to save those who believe. And now let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. God, our Father, we come to you this day in worship and praise, to honour your name, to hear you speak, to be encouraged in fellowship. We come because of who you are, a good and loving Father. You are our carer, protector, provider. Our rock to stand on during storms. Our fortress to hide in for safety during troubles. We realise who you are. We come to worship in gratitude and love. We come to discover why you show all this care and concern for us why you look upon us with love and compassion. And we come to ask where we can experience your love and to be assured again that it is always and everywhere. There is nowhere we can go to escape you, no hiding place where you cannot be, no experience where you are not with us, no darkness where your light cannot reach And when do we know yourself and your love? When we see Jesus. Open our eyes and ears today as we read your word. Reveal your love to us again, because we need reminding so often of your grace. Help us today to see you, to hear you, and to praise you as we
1: ought. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The first of our three readings this morning is from Leviticus, chapter 16, verses 7 to 10, and then to verse 20 to 22, talking about the Day of Atonement. Then he, Aaron, shall take the two goats to the entrance of the tent of the Lord's presence. There he shall draw lots, using two stones, one marked for the Lord and the other for Azazel. Aaron shall sacrifice the goat chosen by Lot for the Lord and offer it as a sin offering. The goat chosen for Azazel shall be presented alive to the Lord and sent off into the desert to Azazel in order to take away the sins of the people. When Aaron has finished performing the ritual to purify the most holy place, the rest of the tent of the Lord's presence and the altar, he shall present to the Lord the live goat chosen for Azazel. He shall put both his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the evils, sins and rebellions of the people of Israel and so transfer them to the goat's head. Then the goat is to be driven off into the desert by someone appointed to do it. The goat will carry all their sins away with him into some uninhabited land. The second reading from Hebrews chapter 5 verses 1 to 10. Every high priest is chosen from his fellow men and appointed to serve God on their behalf, to offer sacrifices and offerings for sins. Since he himself is weak in many ways, he is able to be gentle with those who are ignorant and make mistakes. And because he is himself weak, he must offer sacrifices, not only for the sins of the people, but also for his own sins. No one chooses for himself the honour of being a high priest. It is only by God's call that a man is made a high priest, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take upon himself the honour of being a high priest. Instead, God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. He also said in another place, You will be a priest for ever in the priestly order of Melchizedek. In his life on earth, Jesus made his prayers and requests with loud cries and tears to God, who could save him from death. Because he was humble and devoted, God heard him. But even though he was God's son, he learnt through his sufferings to be obedient. When he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God declared him to be high priest in the priestly order of Melchizedek. And in the Gospel, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. Do not be worried and upset. Jesus told them believe in God and believe also in me there are many rooms in my father's house and I am going to prepare a place for you I would not tell you this if it were not so and after I go and prepare a place for you I will come back and take you to myself so that you will be where I am You know the way that leads to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way to get there? Jesus answered him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except by me. Now that you have known me, he said to them, you will know my Father also. And from now on... You do know him, and you have seen him. Amen.
0: When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and pour contempt on all my pride. It's one of the best-loved of the Easter hymns, and one we will probably be singing at some point in the next few weeks. The cross lies at the heart of what Christians understand. And so it was inevitable that at some point in our short series on doctrine, I would have to get towards this topic was chatting to somebody during the week about the services, and they, said, they looked at me and said, "You don't like it easy, do you?" Uh, no, probably I don't. Going back and reading theology, reminding myself how various ideas have emerged from or are related to aspects of scripture is demanding. I like to think it's been good for me because it has taken me back to think just how complicated and wonderful and mysterious and beautiful our faith really is. Sometimes people talk about having a simple faith as if that is automatically superior than one that engages at um, a complicated level. I'm not sure that's true. The more I contemplate and reflect on what it is I believe, the more amazing it becomes. I hope that it has been at least of some use for you these last few weeks. It's a while since I planned this series and I had in mind today that I would talk about theologies of the cross. And then when I started reading my theology books, I discovered that actually what I really meant was how we understand the work of Christ in other words, what Jesus achieves. And more specifically, something about atonement. I discovered that I'd forgotten that theology of the cross has a very specific meaning in the theology of one theologian. And that wasn't quite where I was going. It's perhaps worth noting that in all the theology books I've read, they are all quite clear there is no such thing as one doctrine of atonement. They note that whilst the historic creeds of the church talk about Calvary, that Jesus was crucified, none of them actually say what it does or how it does it. There is no one correct and final and only understanding of that event. At various times in Christian history, Different understandings have assumed dominance, and most people will live in a time when there is one dominant view and a tendency to think, therefore, that that is what it is. That's the only way to understand it. It means we only get a very narrow view of what actually is incredible and mind-blowing and ultimately a mystery. In the early 21st century, at least amongst Western evangelical Christianity, the most popular understanding is what is often termed penal substitution. A lot of hot air has been exchanged in recent years over its validity or otherwise, very little of which has done anything to edify anybody, and a lot of which has been very damaging for the church. Now, If you're hoping that I'm going to stand here this morning and dismiss it, you're out of luck, because I'm not going to. There are aspects of a proper understanding of that that have value. But if you think I'm going to say it's the only way of understanding the cross, you're also out of luck, because that just is not true. There are all sorts of ways of understanding the atonement, the way in which Christ puts us right with God. There are lots of different images and metaphors that can be used, all of which have a rooting in Scripture and in Christian tradition. And today I want to use three different titles applied to Jesus and see how each of those gives us a tiny glimpse of what atonement is about. It's not going to be exhaustive it may not convince anybody of anything, but it is an approach rooted firmly in scripture and Christian tradition. The three titles we're going to look at necessarily briefly are prophet, priest, and king. So first of all, Jesus as prophet. This links with the understanding of atonement very often, described as the moral example. When we look at Old Testament prophets, we need to avoid the trap of perceiving them as some kind of holy fortune tellers who just announced an inevitable future. That's not what they were about. They were men and women who looked around them and could see the societies of which they were a part in the way that God saw them. For the most part, they were people who had ordinary day jobs. Amos, anybody remember what Amos did for a job? Shepherd, well he's a shepherd actually, I think, he's a Tekoian shepherd, is Amos. He certainly looked after animals anyway, yeah. So Amos looked after animals. So a lot of them had very ordinary jobs. They were people who were deeply rooted in The law, they understood what the law said and the associated religious teachings that went with it. And they clearly spent a lot of time thinking through what it all meant. Whilst the religious authorities sent an awful lot of energy looking at the letter of the law, such as how many steps a person might be permitted to walk on a Sabbath or what constituted work and therefore breaking of the Sabbath, The prophets, inspired by God's Spirit, took a big picture approach and were concerned with the intent of the law. How often, for example, if we read the prophets, do we hear them saying, Thus says the Lord, I despise your religious festivals. I'm not interested in your sacrifices because your society is riddled with injustice. People are hungry. People are not being looked after, and all you're doing is having another service. The work of the prophet, then, is to point people towards God, to announce the word of God, to speak on behalf of God, and to compel people to change their lives in the light of that it's probably fair to say that a lot of what we read in the first half of each of the Gospels relates to such an understanding of Jesus. Indeed, many people thought that he was a prophet. We thought the other week that uh, some people thought he was Elijah returned or John the Baptist or failing that then, just the latest in a long, long line of prophets. Passages such as the Sermon on the Mount with its reflection on aspects of the Torah fit this view as do so many of Jesus' actions in crossing social boundaries to welcome foreigners or to touch people who were deemed ceremonially unclean. But if Jesus is just a prophet, albeit an especially charismatic one, then we have a problem. What then do we do with the cross? Roughly half of each of the gospel is devoted to accounts of the trial, execution, and subsequent resurrection of Jesus. So how do we square this with the image of Jesus as a prophet? I think this is where the short reading we had from the Gospel of John helps us. Unlike the ancient prophets who showed the way to God, Jesus actually is the way to God. In the mysterious I am language of the fourth gospel, Jesus refers to himself as divine, as I am, as the image of God, the one who goes ahead, who passes through death en route to the presence of God. A key theme of Johannine theology and of the moral example understanding of atonement, is the primacy of love as the motivation. John 3.16 is probably the best-known verse in the whole Bible. Bible. God loved the cosmos so much that he gave his only son. Why? (laughs) To condemn the world as irrevocably sinful and evil? Absolutely not. God sent his son into the world that it might be saved, that it might be made whole, that there would be health and hope for all. In this view then, the cross is solely about God's love and there is no place for ideas of punishment. That's an idea that's very difficult to grasp. In this understanding, the cross is a dismantling of the barrier between time and eternity. And it's about transforming the way we live here and now. If we believe that somehow, through the cross, Jesus is the way to God, then our task, as the body of Christ on earth, is to take on that role of the prophet, to speak out about injustice in our time. But also to risk the consequences that doing so may bring. So, one way of understanding atonement is the moral example Jesus as prophet. A second way of understanding the work of Jesus Christ is as a priest, and this is the one that leads to concepts about sacrifice and substitution. I think a lot of popular Christian writing of our time doesn't grasp the nuances of the language properly. And it leaves us with an ugly parody of God who is extremely angry and kills an innocent victim in order to avoid the need to punish real criminals. Both advocates and critics of this understanding will talk about a person who has committed a crime up before a judge, and the judge punishes somebody else. And those who like that model will say, and isn't that fantastic? And those who don't like that model will say, where's the justice in that? I'd like to suggest that to understand Jesus as priest is more difficult than that parody. It's in some ways quite beautiful but it is no less shocking. I wonder how many of you were f- are familiar, or were familiar with that reading we had from Leviticus Lit- about the scapegoat. How many people kind of recognised that as they heard it? Do you know? It's Johnston Baptists, Larkhall Baptists, Ian's Baptists, and a couple of English Baptists down here. I think we're going to have to do an awful lot of Old Testament stuff at some point in this church. But anyway, the scapegoat, the Azazel, it's the scapegoat that carries away the sins of the people. I thought it would be useful to hear it for exactly the reason I've just said. Very few people read it, never mind understand it. Two goats are chosen. One of them is selected by lot to be the scapegoat. And in a ceremonial way, the sins of the people are laid on that by the priest and it is sent off into the wilderness. The scapegoat does not die. That's the point. The scapegoat carries away the taint. It is the other goat that dies and it's sacrificed all the potential that that goat has as a provider of wool or meat or more goats is relinquished. Not to remove the sin because the scapegoat's done that, but rather as a response to say thank you for the removal of the sin. I think there was a subtlety there that is too easily missed if we're not careful If we understand Jesus as the priest, he is the one who transfers the sins of the people onto the scapegoat and who makes the sacrifice in response to God's mercy and grace. But such an image should have a little bit of a problem for us. Jesus was not from a priestly line. His uncle Zachariah was a priest, but Jesus wasn't. So if he's going to be a priest, he is no ordinary priest. And that reading we had from Hebrews gives us a little bit of help here. It compares him with the priest Melchizedek, who predated the Levitical order. Melchizedek lived at the time of Abraham. So it's possible to be a priest to God without being descended from the Levite line, but it still doesn't take us far enough. Just as Jesus the prophet also becomes the way to God, so Jesus the priest also becomes the sacrifice to God. Language of Jesus as the Lamb of God occurs widely in the New Testament, perhaps most notably in the fourth gospel, where we have these words put into the mouth of John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I could really, really picky and think they're conflating the scapegoat and the sacrifice goat uh, in an unhelpful ways. But nevertheless, we seem to have in Jesus a priest who is willing to offer himself. This way of understanding it, God is not punishing Jesus. Rather, Jesus freely gives himself to absorb and remove sin. I don't claim to understand that, but I find it a more powerful and wonderful way of looking at it than the popular penal substitution approach. Jesus is not abandoned or punished by God, but rather God, through Jesus, carries away sin and restores relationship. I think there's a subtle and important difference there. Just need some more water. And so there is a third way of understanding the atonement, Jesus as king. And this is roughly what is known traditionally as the Christus Victor understanding the idea that Christ is a ruler who brings liberation to powerless people held in bondage by sin and death. If the priest gives an example and points the way to God, and if the priest makes the sacrifice and restores relationship with God, then the king overcomes all that separates us from God. Or, to put it another way, if the prophet focuses us on the ministry of Jesus and the priest on the death of Jesus, and the king draws us to the resurrection and return of Jesus, the establishment of the kingdom of Shalom. There is an ugly and often misused word in Christian speak that I hear quite a lot these days, and that word is depravity. Depravity is often used to describe that which a person perceives as especially sinful, whatever that might be, as if there's a degree of sinfulness, which the Bible tells us there isn't. Sin is sin. The American Baptist theologian Stanley Grenz very helpfully reminds us that depravity is not about badness or degree of sinfulness. It's about powerlessness. It's not our badness that's the problem it's our powerlessness. The Apostle Paul said in the, his letter to the church in Rome I find it to be a law that when I want to, to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of, the, of God in my utmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Slightly old-fashioned language there, but basically what Paul is saying is, I want to do it right, but I can't. I just know what I ought to do, but no matter how many tries, whoops, he falls over, he gets it wrong again. It's not about choosing to be bad. It's not about not wanting to be in a right relationship with God. It's just the way it is that we are powerless of ourselves to make everything right. We need a liberator. Jesus, the king, is that liberator. And the stories of what happened after Calvary illustrate what that means. Does death have the last word? Absolutely not. Does our powerlessness have the last word? No. Is there hope and a future beyond the grave? beyond time. Absolutely, 100%. As citizens of Christ's kingdom, even though we continue to struggle, even though we get it wrong, even though sometimes the thought of death causes us anxiety, we are, through Jesus, freed from the chains of sin and death. And we are empowered to live as free people, as heirs of Christ's kingdom. Jesus the prophet. Jesus the priest. Jesus the king. Jesus fully human. Jesus fully divine. Parts of the mystery of the cross, the wonder of atonement, is it on a hill outside jerusalem in the execution of an itinerant preacher all of these ideas and understandings and more met and because they did and because they do we now live pardoned healed restored renewed as co-heirs of the kingdom with Christ. Amen.
2: This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to atone for our sins let us pray saviour of the world what have you done to deserve the cross and what have we done to deserve you To the mystery of undeserved suffering, you bring the deeper mystery of unmerited love. Our Saviour, our Redeemer. And if we really believe that atonement is for all humanity for the whole created world for the whole cosmos we must surely listen ever more closely for you as we pray for others and for ourselves and so we pray for others who may be in our common thoughts this morning We pray for those who are experiencing fear and violence. And particularly today, for those in Syria, in Homs, and now yesterday in Damascus, and particularly, this morning, for mothers. We pray for those who are experiencing sorrow and anguish. And this morning... We remember particularly those in Belgium and the Netherlands who are in shock and mourning following the coach crash in Switzerland. And again in that situation, we particularly remember mothers. We pray for those who are experiencing uncertainty and anxiety. And from the news this morning, we pray particularly for Christians of the Coptic tradition throughout the world, but particularly in Egypt, coming to to terms with the death of their leader of over 40 years. At a very difficult time, for relations in Egypt between Christians and Muslims. We pray for those who are seeking to be prophetic, bringing redeeming love to a complex world. And this morning... We remember the Catholic dissidents in Havana, in Cuba, occupying a church, seeking the release of political prisoners and an end to repression. And we pray for ourselves. And in the silence, let us reflect on the week which has passed. Each of us has probably journeyed through a week of mixed experiences, of varied pressures and contrasting emotions. We think of them all as we bring them to God and listen for God in the silence. God, our Redeemer, as we reflect on the prayers we offer, we call into our mind's eye the spring flowers which we see bursting forth everywhere. Into a dark world, a snowdrop comes, a blessing of hope and peace, carrying with it a green heart, a symbol of God's renewing love. Come to inhabit our darkness, Lord Christ, for dark and light are alike to you. May nature's white candles of hope lighten our journey through Lent and beyond. And we continue in our prayers in the giving of an offering.
0: creator, redeemer, sustainer, prophet, priest, king, way, truth, life, source of love and giver of all good things, send us out from here to live and work to your praise and glory in the name of Christ.